Nahum. Page 923 in my Bible. So if you find the book of uh, Habakkuk, you've gone too far, Habakkuk, gone too far. If you find the book of Micah, you're almost there. I'm going to read the first eight verses of chapter one this evening. Nahum chapter one. The burden of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Escalite, the Escoshite. God is jealous and the Lord revengeth. The Lord revengeth and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries and he reserveth wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord hath his way in the whirlwind and in the storm and, in the, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebuketh the sea and maketh it dry and drieth up all the rivers. Bashan languisheth and Carmel and the flower of Lebanon languisheth. The mountains quake at him and the hills melt and the earth is burned at his presence. Yea, the world and all that dwell therein. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can abide in the fierceness of his anger? His fury is proud, uh, poured out like, a fi like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knoweth him that trust in him. But with an overrunning flood, he will make an utter end of the place thereof, and darkness shall pursue his enemies. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you this night for the opportunity of being here. We thank you for your word. Lord, as we start to make our way into this book of Nahum, we do pray that, Lord, you guide us and help us. Lord, as we seek to uh, introduce the book and uh, take some time to set the scene for the book, I pray that you guide tonight. Lord God, our hearts might be blessed and refreshed by your word. Lord, we might be encouraged by its truth. Father, I'd have wisdom from on high that uh, I might say only that which you would have me to say, and that, Lord, tonight uh, you would receive all the praise and all the glory. Lord, enable me tonight, I pray, to have clarity of thought and be able to speak your word in clarity to your glory. Lord, may each of us tonight receive from you, from your word, what you desire for us to receive. And may we leave this place this night singing your praise and saying hallelujah. What a Savior. We do thank you, Father God, for your word and bless our time together. In it we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The theme of this book of uh, Nahum is uh, unique in some way in regards to the minor prophets because it deals with the destruction of Nineveh. The background to this book is that Assyria, represented by Nineveh, had already destroyed the northern kingdom of Samaria in 722 and 721 BC, resulting in the captivity of the northern kingdom of Israel. And now she poses a very real threat to the southern kingdom and to Judah. The Assyrians, if you didn't know this, were brutally cruel. The kings are often pictured as gloating over the gruesome punishments inflicted 
on conquered peoples. It's said that the Assyrians were the ones to first invent crucifixion. Uh, they loved to impale people alive on stakes, and they just uh, impale them on a stake and leave them there in the sun to die. And they were cruel people, and the kings, are, as I said, are pictured as gloating over the gruesome punishments inflicted on the conquered peoples. They conducted their wars with shocking ferocity. They uprooted whole populations and carried them off into other lands. It was a state policy to deport them to other parts of the empire. Now, we know that Jonah had announced the destruction of Nineveh, but the people had repented. And in the book of Jonah, we know that, that destruction was withheld. God's hand of judgment was held from the Ninevites because they repented of their sin. They turned to God and God saved them. And the judgment was temporarily averted. But not long after Nineveh and the story of Jonah, the Ninevites reverted back to their old ways and their old way of life and their wickedness. And that's the setting of this book of Nahum. We come to this beginning chapter in the book. And this first chapter opens up with the vision of Nahum. Verse 1 says, the burden of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkoshite. Moses says, the burden of Nineveh. You know, in the prophets, the word burden was a, is a heavy message that the prophet had to deliver. It was a weighty message, a message of grave importance. This was not just the word the Lord came unto Nahum saying. This is the burden of Nineveh given to Nahum in a vision. It's a burden. It's a message with weighty importance. It's heavy in the sense that it produces sorrow and grief to the recipient of the message what God is about to deliver to the Ninevites is a burdensome message. It's a weighty message, and it's going to result in their destruction. Now, grammatically, we may be able to say the oracle of Nineveh, because that Hebrew word can be translated that way, oracle. But since this is a heavy oracle, it's justified that they translate this word burden to describe to you and I that this is not just some words. This is not the oracle of Nineveh given to a vision to Nahum. This is a burden. This is a, a very grave, very important uh, message that God is going to deliver to the Ninevites via the prophet Nahum. And secondly, we read the burden of Nineveh or the burden against the word of there can be translated against the burden against Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And around 700 BC, King Sennacherib made Nineveh the capital of the Assyrian Empire, and it remained the capital until it was destroyed in 612 BC. Now, of course, we know that the city had heard the preaching of Jonah. And that event took place 100 years prior to the events of Nahum and the events described in Nahum, 100 years prior to the destruction of the Ninevites, Jonah had preached. So God had been gracious with the Ninevites for 100 years from the time of turning back to him to this time. And Nahum will address a city that has slipped back into sin. 
They've reverted back to their old ways. They've reverted back to their old behavior. They've gone back to their idolatry and their wickedness. And Nahum is going to address these people that is again ripe for judgment. And among other things, the prophecy of Nahum shows that God not only deals with individuals as individuals, but God deals with nations as nations. God will not just hold individuals accountable for their behavior, but God holds nations accountable for their behavior. And I was thinking about that this week. You know, that includes Australia. Our nation is accountable to God for its behavior. And we really ought to be in prayer for our political leaders and be in prayer for those who lead the government and those who lead the opposition and and I'm not going to get party political tonight. I'm simply just saying we ought to pray for them because our country will be held accountable for its behavior, not just you and I as individuals, but our nation. Our nation is about to make some very important decisions in regards to same-sex marriage and other things that is important for you and I to spend time in prayer, praying for our nation, praying for our political leaders, praying for the people of this land that we make the right choice, the wise choice, the choice that God would have us to make. Because God does hold nations accountable for their behavior. I know it's a sobering thought when you think of our nation. You know, I, I was seeing this last week, and I've talked to a few people about this just recently. You know, I'm amazed at how quickly things have changed, how quickly things have gone downhill. Uh, you know, uh, it, it doesn't seem like uh, just a few years ago, but things were not that bad in our country as far as religious freedom went, as far as uh, taking a stand against wickedness was concerned. But now we've come to the place whereby to take a stand for righteousness is openly ridiculed in the media, openly ridiculed uh, at other places. You know, no longer is it okay for you and I to stand up for righteousness in some places. We can now be uh, accused of, uh, under anti-discrimination laws and defam uh, fam defamation laws, we can be uh, charged and other things for saying certain things which just a few years ago was expected for the church to stand for. And we live in a generation, you know, it's hard to believe that the Lord will tarry much longer in the age in which we live. Now, he may well do, but it's hard to see how. And if he does, who knows how bad it's going to get. But we need to pray for our nation. Because as God holds individuals accountable for their individual behavior, as we see here in this book, God holds nations accountable for their behavior as a nation collectively, and the Ninevites collectively were wicked. I'm sure there were some people in Nineveh that were very righteous, but the nation itself was wicked, and God was going to hold them accountable for their behavior. The burden... The burden against Nineveh. Thirdly, the book of the vision, it says in verse 1. The burden of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkishite. You know, it's an interesting phraseology here too. Because this is more than a message communicated to Nahum. God doesn't say, here are the words of the Lord to Nahum. The, the prophecy that God gave to Nahum, he says, this is the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkishite. So Nahum is, 
communi- God communicates to Nahum more than words and phrases. Because he says to him, it's a vision. In some way, Nahum saw what God is describing in the book of Nahum. Go back with me to Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 1, please. Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 1. Because we read something very similar. As God is giving his message to a prophecy and message to preach to Isaiah, he says in Isaiah 2.1, the word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Isaiah saw this message that God gave to him in a vision. And in some way, Nahum's the same. Isaiah saw a word, and in a similar sense, Nahum sees this vision. He sees this message that God gives to him. And when we see the vivid, descriptive way that Nahum writes, we can understand that the book records what he saw in a vision. Go with me to Nahum chapter 2, please. Nahum chapter 2, just by way of illustration of what I'm saying, that he he describes in such an amazing way what's happening, and uh, it, it portrays the fact that he saw this, not just heard these words, but saw these things. In uh, chapter 2 and verse 1, it says, He that dasheth in pieces is come up before thy face. Keep the mun- uh, munition, <laughs> watch the way. Make thy loins strong, fortify thy power mightily. For the Lord hath turned away the excellency of Jacob, as the excellency of Israel, for the emptiers have emptied them out and marred their vine branches. The shield of his mighty men is made red. The valiant men are in the scarlet. The chariots shall be with flaming torches in the day of his preparation, and the fir trees shall be terribly shaken. The chariots shall rage in the streets. They shall jostle one against another in the broadways. They shall seem like torches. They shall run like the lightnings, he shall recount his worthies. They shall stumble in their walk. They shall make haste in the wall thereof, and the defense shall be prepared. The gates of the rivers shall be opened, and the palace shall be dissolved. And so it goes on. This is more than just a prophet declaring prophecy. He is describing in detail the events that are going to happen with regard to this prophetic vision that God gives to Nahum about the Ninevites. He saw this. So this book is unique in a number of ways. This book is about a Gentile nation, the Ninevites. It's given to Nahum, but it's given in a vision to him rather than in the word of the Lord coming to him. It's descriptive, This is, and it's a burden. It's a weighty message given to the prophets, Nahum. Notice what it says at the end of the verse 1. It says, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishites. We don't know anything else about Nahum. Nor do we know anything about his city, Elkosh. In fact, the name Nahum is an abbreviated form of the name Nehemiah. And the name Nehemiah means comfort of Jehovah, a comfort of Yahweh. 
Nahum simply means comforter, <laughs> which is rather interesting because he wasn't much of a comforter to the Ninevites. Okay, and when you read the book of Nahum, you realize that his name does not describe particularly what he was doing for the Ninevites. But there again, he probably was a comfort to those in Judah who were sitting poised to be invaded by the Ninevites, by the Assyrians. And that invasion is avoided by what God does to the Assyrians. Apart from the prophet's name, we know only that he came from the city of Elkosh, he was an Elkoshite, which means that he came from the city of Elkosh. <laughs> and that's interesting too, because Elkosh occurs nowhere else in the Bible. In fact, we have no idea where Elkosh was. It doesn't appear on any ancient maps. It doesn't appear in the Bible. It doesn't appear anywhere. Nobody seems to know where Elkosh was. Now, the best guess that uh, scholars have is that Elkosh was the region of Galilee, up there in the north of Israel. And the only reason for that is because the name Capernaum, like in Matthew 4.13, where Christ went to the city of Capernaum, Capernaum is named after Nahum, or after a Nahum, okay? Because Capernaum, it says, Kephar Nahum, Capernaum, okay, Capernaum. So it's the city of Nahum. So the only clue that we might have as to where Elkosh was is it's the modern day, uh, the New Testament day uh, city of Capernaum. But that's the best guess, okay? Uh, because you can't find Elkosh anywhere. So here I am studying this week and thinking, okay, we're going to have a look at a couple of these things. And you know nothing about Naomi, you know nothing about Elkosh at all, except what's given to us in verse 1. And that's the totality of it. Okay. Now, Nahum ministered somewhere between 100 and 150 years after Jonah and was a contemporary of the prophet Isaiah and, of prophet, and the prophet Micah. The message of Nahum deals solely with the Ninevites and her destruction, hence the burden of Nineveh. deals with nobody else. The whole of this, this book, the, all the chapters, the three chapters, simply just deal with with that nation of Assyria and the Ninevites. We don't know exactly when Nahum gave his prophecy, but there are some clues. He mentioned the destruction of an Egyptian city by the name of No. Got a name for a city by that, No, N-O. Okay, the city of No or No Ammon. Go to chapter 3, please, and verse 8. Aren't they better than populous No? that was situate among the rivers, that had the waters round about it, whose rampart was the sea, and her wall was from the sea. The city of Noah, Noamon, is the city of Egypt, and it fell to the Assyrians in 663 B.C. So Nahum must have written after the fall of Noah, because he describes the fall of Noah, and he says, are you better than no? The populace know. Why should you be reprieved and saved, Nineveh? Are you better than that Egyptian city which God destroyed? So this prophecy must be after the, after the destruction of the city of no. Nahum, uh, sorry, Nineveh was destroyed 50 years after no 
was destroyed in 612 BC. Completely destroyed by the Medes from the north and the Babylonians from the south. It is likely that Nahum then was written during the height of Nineveh's power, some 18 years prior to Nineveh's destruction, but we are only guessing at this part. We do know, though, it was after the destruction, no, before the destruction of Nineveh. Nahum, I knew I'd get that messed up, Nineveh and Nahum, <laughs> and uh, Nehemiah, I said a couple of times when I was going through this sermon, I thought he's not even mentioned this book. Okay, uh, so <laughs> Nineveh, Nahum tells us how Nineveh was destroyed in verse 8 of chapter 1. He said, with an overflowing flood, you will make another end of the place thereof, and darkness shall pursue his enemies. And he does so again in chapter 2 and uh, verse, um, I can't remember which verse it is. Uh, oh, verse 6, sorry. It says, the gates of rivers shall be opened and the palace shall be dissolved. We know from history that the way the Nineveh was destroyed was that heavy rain came, unusually, unseasonally heavy rain came upon the city of Nineveh in 612 B.C. And it caused a massive flood, so much so that the foundations of the city of Nineveh were undermined by the floodwaters. The city in this day had walls 100 feet high, okay? And uh, there were massively thick walls. Uh, but then this rain came and this flood came and it undermined the foundation of the walls and the city literally fell. And the enemy came in through the ruined walls and overtook the city. It literally just caved in under its weight because there were such heavy walls. When the water got under the foundations, there was no bedrock to hold it and it just simply collapsed. The city fell down. So when God says in verse 8 of chapter 1, with an overflowing flood, he will make another end of the place thereof, and darkness shall pursue his enemies. In verse 6 of chapter 2, the gates of rivers shall be opened and the palace shall be destroyed. That's exactly what happened. In fact, it was so the destruction was so great that Alexander the Great walked over the spot, not even knowing that a city had ever existed in that place. That was the total destruction of Nineveh. It disappeared from history. In fact, nobody, 612 to 1845, the city of Nineveh was never known to exist, could not be seen. In 1845, some archaeologists went and dug up the remains of the city of Nineveh. So we know it existed, but it was destroyed by a flood. It's an amazing stat when you think that Nineveh was saved 100 years prior to this because they repented. And now because of their wickedness, God destroys them so utterly that they are, their whole city is swallowed up by floodwaters. And nobody knew the city existed until 1845 when they dug up the foundations in an archaeological dig. You know, God once used Jonah to warn the city and spared it. But now because of a relapse in the gross sin, he pronounces judgment upon the city. 
And you know, I was going to, as I said this morning, I was going to preach the first eight verses, but as I got thinking about some of these things, I was thinking about there is a significance in this for you and I. You know, as believers, we need to be continuing on guard because we too can fall. You see, the once mighty Nineveh came to Almighty God and bowed their knees before Him and were gloriously saved from the youngest to the oldest and God spared them from their wickedness and spared them from destruction and judgment. But 100 years later, they are worse now than they were back in Jonah's day. And beloved, you know, you and I as believers need to be continuing our guard because we too can fall and fail God. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, please. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. First Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 12. Speaking to the Corinthian believers, he says this, Wherefore, let him that thinketh he, take, uh, he, thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. Let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. For the Corinthian Christians, as, as the apostles speaking to them here, if they were going to resist temptation, because verse 13 says, there is no temptation taken you, but such is common to man. For God is faithful, who is not, uh, will not suffer you to be tempted above that you're able. But will with the temptation make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it? In order for the Corinthian Christians to resist temptation, their temptation to be selfish, their temptation to be self-focused, their temptation to uh, sin and overlook wickedness, they must first understand that they're vulnerable. I mean, verse 13 doesn't make an awful lot unless you realize you are able to be tempted. If you don't realize that temptation, that you're able to fall, verse 13 means little to you. The whole point of verse 12, I mean, we love verse 13. We know it. Many of us memorized it. Many of us can quote it. But the point is, in the context, the first thing Paul says to the Corinthian believers is that they need to be careful to take heed if they think they stand, lest they fall. In other words, if you're going to avoid the temptation, if you're going to avoid sinning, then the first thing you need to do is recognize that you're vulnerable. And that's true for us. If we're to resist temptation, then you and I must first of all realize we're vulnerable to be tempted. If you and I are going to avoid sinning, then you and I first and foremost need to recognize that we are capable of sin. The one who thinks he stands will not even be on guard against temptation. So he can easily fall. And it's easy for you and I at times to, to get on a, on, a, on a spiritual run, on a spiritual high, and you and I are going on for the Lord and everything seems to be... Uh, peaches and cream and everything seems to be so nice and, and, and the, you know, the tree smells so wonderful, the flowers are so wonderful and the sky looks so bright and everything is just rosy. Isn't it those times that you and I are under most danger to fall? It's those times that you and I can easily fall into sin. The Ninevites had come close to destruction 
and God had delivered them through the preaching of Jonah. They'd seen their sin. They turned to Almighty God, and they were set. They were okay. But now, 100 years later, we're about to hear the story. You know, temptation works like rocks in a harbor. When we're at low tide, when you look at a harbor and we're low tide, then the rocks are exposed and everybody can see the rocks and everybody avoids the rocks and the danger. If you're out in a boat and you're making your way into the harbor and the tide is lower at low tide, you can see the rocks, you avoid the rocks and you avoid the danger. But at high tide, it's not as easy to see the rocks. It's not as easy to see the danger. And it is possible to run aground. And your same strategy for you and I is to raise the tide when it comes to temptation. To cover over the dangers, to cover over the rocks so that we don't see them. So that you and I indeed become shipwrecked on the rocks of life. The devil doesn't drain the, the harbor so you and I can see the danger. We can navigate our way through without danger. Remember the apostle Paul said that he kept his body under, lest by, unless he were, by any means should be tempted that he himself should be shipwrecked. And that's the imagery here, that we're making our way through the harbor and we don't know where the temptations, the rocks are. We need the pilot to come on board and guide us safely to the harbor. But we're in danger. And you and I think that everything is smooth sailing and we're making our way through and we don't see the dangers. We don't see the rocks. We don't see the, the, the destructive nature of the temptation. You know, they're not called the pleasures of sin without just cause. In Hebrews 11.25, talking about Moses, said that he refused the pleasures of sin, which were for a season. And God doesn't describe sin as the pleasurable without just cause. Sin is pleasurable. Temptation is pleasurable. If it wasn't, you and I wouldn't be tempted. You know, if every time we were tempted... Sticking out of the side of the temptation was razor blades, and we knew it was going to cut us and hurt us. We wouldn't be tempted. It'd be easy to avoid temptation, wouldn't it? But temptation is not easy to avoid because temptation comes when you and I least expect it. When you and I are sailing through the harbor and everything seems to be going well, then you and I are in danger of being shipwrecked on the rocks of life by the temptations. The devil brings along. Somebody said, the highest saint under heaven can stand no longer than he depends upon God and continues in the obedience of faith. He ceases to do so, will fail, will fall into sin and get a darkened understanding and a hardened heart. The highest saint of heaven can stand no longer than he depends upon God and continues in obedience of faith. This is true. You and I cannot stand unless we depend upon God. We need to recognize that confidence in our own security is no evidence that we are safe. Just because today everything's going well, just because today we're not 
sinning. Just because today we're going on swimming the Lord, we're on a spiritual high, we're on the mountains up, just because of that does not mean that you and I are safe. In fact, such confidence may be one of the strongest evidences that we're in danger. The truth is that we are most safe when we know that we're weak and feeble. Isn't that true? When you and I think that we're, we're weak and you and I are susceptible to sin and temptation, it's then that you and I are the safest because then that we recognize we need divine assistance. When we realize that we can't do it alone is when you and I are the safest. When you and I realize the temptation is strong, that's when we're the safest because we're weak and he is strong. All of us are in danger of falling into sin. All of us can dishonor our position in Christ. You know, the truth is, it often happens, doesn't it, when we've been especially blessed and refreshed, that we relapse into some sin or behavior that takes away from God. I mean, we've all been there, haven't we? You know, we've gone off to a camp, and God's blessed us out of our socks, and we are excited for the Lord. We're on a spiritual high, and Monday comes, and by the end of the day, somehow, you and I have sinned, and we wonder, how in the world did that happen? Because we didn't see it coming. You see, we were so a spiritual high, we are on top of that mountaintop, and then we tripped over a rock and fell down the other side, and we didn't see it coming. See, just the opposite effect is produced from what should be and what needs to be. So often what happens is we're on a spiritual high and that's when we're in most danger. You would think the spiritual high would then make us immune to the attacks of the devil, that somehow you and I would be floating on air and that those rocks that are just below the surface, you and I don't have any, any worry about because you and I are there on that spiritual mountaintop and we're gliding by and everything's fine. You know, and uh, we've got our heads in the clouds and we don't see the danger. And so the spiritual high has the opposite effect that it should have. Instead of helping you and I to get through the week spiritually on fire, we find ourselves flat on our faces in the mire. Because we forgot that we still were just as weak and just as vulnerable as we were before the spiritual high. Nothing's changed, but we still need the Lord. We should be especially on our guard because we're in danger of falling if we're not watching. We can all fall into the worse state than before. You know, every one of us are vulnerable to being worse than we were even before we got saved if we're not careful. You know, if we allow bitterness into our lives, if we allow unforgiveness into our lives, if we allow something into our lives that controls us, takes control of our lives, then you and I can find ourselves in a worse state than we were before we even got saved. Now, we all know believers, don't we, whereby they were on fire for the Lord, they were living for the Lord, and today we look at them and think, how can they live like that? What happened to them? 
they didn't see the danger. They didn't see the rocks, and, and they were shipwrecked on the rocks of life, and, and they, they preached to others, but they themselves became a castaway. They were shipwrecked. And now it's hard to distinguish between them and the unsaved because they're behaving just like the unsaved, and they're acting in a worse way than they were before they got saved because they were vulnerable but didn't know it. We need to keep our eyes on the Lord and not allow things like bitterness and unforgiveness and unconfessed sin to take charge. But we might indeed be all that God wants us to be. We note it said at the beginning of verse 1, the burden of Nineveh. It's not just a prophecy. It's a burden. It's a burdensome prophecy. It's a dead weight to Nineveh a millstone about their neck because what they were in God has now vanished. They thought they stood, but they failed to take heed, and they fell. And now there's a millstone about their neck, which is this prophecy of Nahum. The Ninevites saw clearly at the time of Jonah how much it was to their advantage to turn away from evil save the city but now they had become worse than ever a city full of lies and robbery and debauchery and sin I love this quote they repented of their repentance returned with a dog to his vomit and at length grew worse than ever they had ever been that was in the Bible Beloved, we must daily be on our guard unless we also fall. He that thinketh he standeth, take heed lest he fall. That's the vision of Nahum. Next week, we're going to see the burden of the Lord as we start in verse 2 of chapter 1. But remember this. You and I need to be on guard so that you and I do not fall, but we stand for him, in his glory, day by day. Gracious Father, we thank you for your word this night. We thank you, Father God, for the book of Nahum. We thank you, Father, for the challenge of this verse 1. And Lord, help us to learn from the example of the Ninevites, the people who once were on fire for you, to a people now who are poised for destruction. Lord, may we take heed that, Father God, we would not be deceived into thinking that we stand lest we fall. But may we, like Paul, keep our body under, lest when we preach to others, we ourselves should become castaways, shipwrecked on the rocks of life. Commend your word to our hearts this night, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.